Welcome to r slash, a podcast where I read the best posts from across Reddit. Today's subreddit is r slash malicious compliance, where OP gets his bosses fired. Our next Reddit post is from Blue, You're My Boy. In high school, a few friends and myself worked at a local chain restaurant. We were fully able to run the day shift, but had never really broken down the equipment and closed up for the evening. One particular night, a few of the night shift had called in sick, and we were asked to pull a double and close the restaurant, which we did. We essentially worked from 10am until after midnight, just myself and my three friends and a manager. We were really tired, but felt that we had done the right thing and helped out the company. The next day, the four of us came into work for another day shift. The day manager pulls us into her office, one by one, and informs us that she would need to write us up because we hadn't properly cleaned and filtered the fry grease. This was in spite of the fact that we had worked double shifts, had never closed, or been trained on closing procedures, and we'd been given permission by the night manager to leave, which meant that all closing work had been completed. After a quick chat with my friends, it was agreed that I was going to push back on the write-up, and if the manager insisted on writing us up, we would quit. I informed my manager that we were collectively not going to sign the write-up slips. She threatened to fire us, and I informed her that if she insisted on writing us up after we pulled a double, hadn't been trained, and had been released by a night manager, then we would quit. Collectively quit. Immediately quit. She responded with, If you don't sign the write-up, then you'll be fired. A staring contest ensues, and I eventually break in with a, Okay, I guess we're fired then. We turned in our hats and left. It was really, really amazing. My friend quit mid-burger prep. My other friend simply walked off the cash register in the middle of taking an order. We clocked out and walked out the back, leaving only the day manager in the restaurant. There were customers in line and customers at the drive-thru. Later that same day, we decided to return to our place of prior employment to have dinner. The night shift must have still been sick because the entire restaurant was staffed with managers from nearby restaurants, the same chain, including our day manager who was now pulling her own double, and the night manager who had released us the night before. There was nothing better than eating our burgers and watching the management staff fail at every station and knowing that their pride, lack of rational flexibility, and threats have resulted in one of the most righteous meals we ever ate together. Needless to say, we were all employed at the next chain restaurant down the street in a matter of days. It's been nearly 30 years, and I remember that standoff, her ultimatum, and her walkout like it was last week. Down in the comments, we have this reply from Rome Hylia. Don't forget to filter that fry grease tonight as you saunter out the door. Our next Reddit post is from It's Stuper. I've been serving in a certain military branch for five years, and I'm nearing the end of my contract. So my give-a-care mentality is completely gone. I'm in charge of inventory of specific pieces of equipment, smaller pieces that are used by many people at my job. From time to time, these pieces disappear. Most of the time, that just means something's been misplaced, but we have many hired contractors who have a tendency to take things. Now, every once in a while, we conduct an inventory of these pieces of equipment for accountability reasons. When we lose things, it looks very bad on my work. More specifically, bad on my bosses. So I prepared the inventory, and I was surprised by the amount of missing pieces. I did everything I was supposed to do and presented the inventory to my boss. He didn't believe that we had so many pieces missing and asked me to inventory them again. So I did. I got the same number and I put the inventory in his inbox. A few months go by and I get the same thing. There can't be that many things missing. Do another inventory. 
So I'm compliant and I do it again. And again. And again. This gets dragged out for over a year, and I'm starting to notice something. My boss is about to leave his position soon, and he's deliberately pushing this off to the next guy to cover himself. So last week, my boss tells me I have to do a specific survey with my coworkers that will get sent up to the head honcho. This survey allows a small guy to have a voice directly to the top. I tell him that I can't because I have the night watch, but he doesn't care and demands that I go do the survey. Fine. Before the survey starts, our boss tells us that we have to be completely honest and all the surveys are anonymous. Rad. I wrote down what had been happening with the inventory and directed them to where they could find the proof. Fast forward to yesterday. All my bosses are fired, and now I'm reporting to new people who are now fixing the issues with the inventory. So, OP said that he's in the military, but he didn't say what the items are that he's watching over. I suppose there's a chance that these could be mundane items like screwdrivers and helmets, but I can't help but wonder if these are things like grenades or C4 or assault rifles. <laughs> Is it common for those things to just randomly go missing in the military? Because that seems really dangerous. Do you guys just wake up one morning and like, oh, has anyone seen our tank? Oh well. Our next Reddit post is from PTPESQ. In 2008, I was involved in a federal lawsuit when my rural Texas high school tried to suspend me for wearing a shirt supporting then-Democratic hopeful John Edwards. They said it was a violation of the dress code, which was only selectively enforced. My parents had my back and agreed that it was, to quote my very white dad, redneck cracker nonsense. I'll never forget during the initial meeting when my principal called in a school board member. He said that if I got suspended, I'd probably get kicked off the football team and that could hurt me getting into college. That didn't matter. I was a miserable player and a smart kid, so football wasn't going to be the thing that took me to college. However, his slimy fake concern as he tried to leverage my future against my free speech is something I'll never forget. Anyway, as the case goes on, the squeeze gets tighter. First, they have the football coaches try to get me to drop the lawsuit. Having the football coaches talk about how my selfishness means that they can't wear Fellowship of Christian Athlete shirts anymore, trying to embarrass me in front of the team. I'm a fat kid who openly plays Magic the Gathering in high school. Hit me with your best shot. I have no shame. Next, they hold a meeting with all the teachers, telling them that I'm a problem and that they need to keep an eye on me in case I slip up. I found this out years after the fact when I bumped into my English teacher at a friend's wedding. Finally, they just start pulling in students from my classes to get them to say bad stuff about me. I was a class clown, so this means that every single dirty joke, rude comment, or loud fart I ever made ends up getting reported to school administration. Which then leads to this awful little toady vice principal calling me and my parents in and then reading my comments back to them in front of my mother. That one stung. My parents still knew that this was BS, but who wants their locker room jokes aired in front of their own mother? They used this as pretext to expel me for six weeks, citing inappropriate sexual conduct. They shoved me into the disciplinary alternative education program, and I'm effing steaming. This program is basically where they warehouse kids with emotional problems that they can't handle. You just sit in a room in a refurbished insane asylum and can't do anything but read or use the computer for monitored educational purposes. You also get booted from extracurricular activity while you're in there. I know that at this point they want me to make a scene so they can punish me further, so I do the exact opposite. I channel all my rage and new free time into my schoolwork, doing homework I would usually ignore because I knew I could ace a test. 
Now I'm doing both, and my GPA is climbing. I start looking into scholarships and find a bunch that are really interested in political activism, and guess who now knows a little bit about that? I apply and rip my school a new butthole in every single application essay. Then I work with my dad and find an attorney who will take my case pro bono. Which means that while the school is bleeding money in attorney fees, it doesn't cost us anything to keep it in court. I spent those weeks working like a monk, motivated entirely by spite, doing everything I could to make their BS work for me. I got out, got back on all my teams, and ended up applying for a prestigious honors program at my dream school. Not only did I get in, but I got way more financial support than I thought I would. Eventually, we lost the case, but the school had to abolish the dress code anyway because they couldn't afford to get sued over it again. I don't like the idea that a school lost money, but man, they made their choice and they could have backed down whenever. Now I've graduated law school and I'm taking the bar in two weeks and already have a job investigating government corruption. I'm getting paid to be a pain in the butt for petty authority and it's pretty sweet. OP, I don't know if I would consider that court case a loss. The school had to pay out the nose for their bad decision, and they had to walk back their stupid dress code policy, so even if they won the court case, it was still a pyrrhic victory. Our next Reddit post is from Reckless Commenter. Among 20-30-somethings to 30 somethings around the world, social dances become not just a hobby, but a community. People routinely travel to other cities and even other countries to attend dance weekends with local dancers hosting visitors. It's a great combination of fun, social connections and hijinks, and a physical skill that can ratchet up to high intensity. Many such events are organized by professionals who are event-organizing rock stars. Other events are fly-by-the-seat-of-their-pants affairs run by amateur organizers who couldn't manage a lemonade stand. This story is about the second kind of organizer. An organizer announced a four-day dance camp in another state with a bunch of instructors. It was a first-time event, but I knew these people from some past events, and it sounded like fun. Four months before the event, a registration website opened, and the early bird registration cost was like $600. I had the time and money to spare, so I bit the bullet and bought a ticket. Weeks passed. To-be-determined event details remained to be determined, which was unusual, but not that unusual. More weeks passed. I started periodically emailing the lead organizer asking for updates. Occasionally, I got a vague answer that it's all good. Other times, radio silence. I had deepening skepticism. Four days before the start of the event, I received a message from the lead organizer. Event canceled. Something something rain damage to the venue. I was disappointed, but hardly surprised. Mostly, I was annoyed because United Airlines wouldn't change or refund my ticket. So I asked the organizer when I should expect a refund. Sorry, we lost all the money on the planning of this event. No refunds. What? I started digging. Rain damage looked sketchy because the National Weather Service reported that the whole state had received one inch of rain in the past month. I personally knew one of the lead organizer's associates, so I called him up. Yeah, there was no rain damage. He gave me an earful about months of non-planning. The event had been a mirage. I sent a rather to-the-point email message demanding a refund, and the lead organizer agreed and asked for a few weeks. The refund didn't arrive. More email exchanges led to more promises and more misdates. Eventually, about nine months after the scheduled event, I received one last response. Don't ask me about this again, or I won't refund anything. 
I waited another month, and then, late one evening, something in my brain clicked, and I decided, time's up. Cue malicious compliance. He doesn't want me to ask about it again? Okay, I won't. Instead, I visited the main web forum for this dance community and posted my entire experience, backed by facts and dates and quotes. I copied the full, unedited email exchange between me and this organizer, up to and including his last message. I reviewed and tweaked my post carefully, repeatedly, making sure that every statement was accurate and fair. I clicked post and went to bed. When I woke up the next morning, my inbox was on fire. The dance community came down on this organizer like a nuclear bomb. Upcoming events scratched them from their rosters. People posted about some of the slimy things this organizer had done previously in past events. Students and some of his close friends turned their backs on him. And the best part, a few professional organizers of other top-tier events publicly responded. This is not how our community operates and not how we treat people. And to prove it, we're offering OP a complimentary pass to all of our events. The lead organizer initially posted an indignant reply, but quickly realized the gravity and hopelessness of his situation and shifted gears. He called me, which was the first time we actually communicated outside of email, and he begged for forgiveness. And he promised a full refund after sniveling a bit about needing to take a cash advance from a credit card. The full refund arrived about a week later. For years afterwards, I periodically received messages from people reading, Hey, this organizer wants to do an event with us, but we heard something about a bad experience you had with him. Can you tell us what happened? And then I say, sure, here's a link to the forum post that documents what went down. Great story, OP, but next time just do a charge back on your credit card. You get your money back, and he gets a ruined credit score. Our next Reddit post is from Rhubarb. My wife and I have used a salesman's sexism against him, and it was so satisfying. It was when we bought our first new car. We were nervous that we didn't know what we were doing, so we did a lot of research. It helps that my wife is a librarian. When we got to the dealership, the salesman would only talk to me. I was all buddy-buddy with the guy too, but he completely ignored my wife. We went along with him. The dealer was running a promotion where they would give you a certain amount of money for your trade-in, no matter the condition. If you can drive it into the lot, kind of deal. Of course, they just don't discount off of MSRP in those cases, so it's a gimmick. When we walked in, the salesman asked which car was ours parked outside and then asked if we were trading it in. I said no, we weren't trading this car in. You can see where this was going. As I said, we'd done our research and knew what a fair price was for the car we wanted. At the time, Edmonds had detailed dealer-level price information for many new cars, including all the various ways that a dealer gets paid and what their true costs are. I negotiated the price, since he wouldn't talk to my wife, and we arrived at a number that I thought was fair, actually. We had a good deal at that point. Everything was going smoothly as he wrote up our agreement, until he confirmed that we didn't have a trade-in. I said, no, we were trading in a car, just not the one that we drove into the dealership with. He literally froze for a few seconds looking down at the form, his hand hovering over the page. He asked the make, model, and year of our trade-in, and when I told him, he sputtered and balked. The car we were trading in was on its last legs. I'd had it throughout all of my college, and it was old before I bought it. It was definitely past its prime. I said, I thought you were running a promotion where the quality of the trade-in doesn't matter. I asked him, would you have given us a higher price if you knew we had a trade-in? My wife said under her breath, that's sleazy. He heard her, as she intended him to. 
He then tried to renegotiate the price. We knew from our research that if they gave us the price we'd already agreed on and they honored the trade-in deal, that they would be losing money. So we were willing to move a bit, but we wanted to take our time. He was visibly nervous. Every time he tried a new way of asking for a higher price, I would say something like, I understand what you're saying with a sympathetic look. Then I would look at my wife and she would look back at me and silently shake her head no. I'd then look back at the salesman and shrug and say, I don't think that's going to work. He was stuck. My wife was the one standing in the way of him getting out of his predicament, but he hadn't talked to her at all. He had barely even acknowledged her presence. He just couldn't start talking to her now that we were negotiating. Oh, and I even got to use that classic car salesman line. What do I have to do for you to put me in this car today? We finally agreed to raise the price to what we calculated must have been their break-even point. We hadn't expected to get that low of a price, and we also got them to install a nice aftermarket sound system. It's the best deal we've ever gotten on a new car. Honestly, we're not the best negotiators individually, but that day we made one hell of a team. That was our slash malicious compliance, and if you like this content, check out my Patreon where I publish extra episodes. Also, be sure to follow this podcast, because I put out new Reddit podcast episodes every single day.